Hello and welcome to Davy Forum's podcast for Wednesday the 8th of July. And joining me on this edition are Assistant Editor Steve Withers. I think this guy's a couple of cans short of a six-pack. And audio reviewer Ed Selly. Face plasma rifle in the 40-watt range. So, welcome back to the weekly podcast. Apologies that we were not around last week, but we're we're all ready and raring to go, as you can tell, because there's two missing. <laughs> uh, so, we're we're going to crack on with the podcast this week. We're going to go to competitions first, and then we're, we're going to go to a subject which will explain why we were not around last week. So, competition-wise, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy on Blu-ray is available. Uh, 13th of July, that closes. And Heat on Blu-ray... 22nd of July that one closes and previous competition winners Mark Hell won uh, Black Swan on Blu-ray and Alistair G won the Yamaha RX 600D RXS 600D get it right uh, AV receiver and that was courtesy of a scan so that's the competitions out of the way so Steve you're waiting on the latest Panasonic the CX802 now Mark looked at this that was the 50 inch version uh, which is edge lit uh, you are waiting on the 55-inch version because... It's got a direct LED backlight. Um, uh, Mark uh, did the 50-inch, and that has edge LED lighting, as you said, Phil, and the 55-inch and above will have direct LED backlighting, um, which hopefully should make a small, if uh, substantial, difference. Based upon his review, you know, it looks like a stonking television. I mean, the, the measurements on, on the grass were absolutely stellar, including um, colour accuracy across, across all saturation points. Uh, and um, they're using a VA panel, of course, so better blacks than last year. And so hopefully with the addition of the um, direct LED backlighter and the local dimming, we should see um, an, an equally impressive performance from the 55-inch version when we get it in for review. It arrives tomorrow, the day before the podcast goes up. Um, so hopefully we should have that all done by the end of the week. Now, one of the things, as I mentioned just a minute ago, that impressed me in Mark's review was the accuracy of the colours on this TV, on the uh, CX802. And Phil, I think you can give us a bit more insight into exactly how Panasonic are achieving this incredible level of accuracy, can't you? Yes. So last week, Panasonic invited me and a couple of others from the UK and some German uh, editors as well over to Hollywood to explain exactly why their TVs are so accurate and accurate to the... They call it the creator's intent rather than the director's intent. And it's all about making sure that the colour accuracy is, is spot on to the industry standards, which everybody uh, in Hollywood and in San Francisco, because there's also a film uh, business in that city as well, um, they all work to the same standards. And the, the whole point of this trip was just to show us that that is exactly the case. Everybody at the moment is working to DCI spec for the cinema and Rec. 709 for home. And you know when they do the colours for the cinema, they then sit and, and reinterpret that for the home release because there is a slight difference in the colour gamuts. It's obviously in the cinema they use DCI P3 as the standard, which when we get ultra high definition blu-ray and so on uh, that is likely going to be the standard for the next few years at least the next five to ten years uh, when we get uh, that standard so uh, there's that but there's also rec 709 at the moment which is what we have in the home so what panasonic are saying is that uh, whether it's dci or rec 709 their tvs will try and be as accurate as possible to what's uh, what the filmmaker intended you to see. So the whole purpose of the trip, we visited Panasonic Hollywood Labs. I can't talk about the first bit until IFA, uh, because we were showing some new products and I can't say anything more than that. And we can talk about that when IFA comes around, which is seven or eight weeks away. So not yeah, not that far. <laughs> not, not that long to wait on that. 
So one of the technologies behind what Panasonic are doing in the 802 and other uh, TVs in the range this year is they're using the uh, what's called a 4K Studio Master processor. Basically, the processing behind the panel is all Panasonic's. They're using phosphors for wide color rather than quantum dot. Uh, this is because they, well, they, they used to be the masters of plasma. They know all about phosphors. Uh, so they can use that to, to get a wider color gamut. And they're reckoning that they get about 98% of DCI now. We've done the measurements and Mark was uh, estimating that to be 90%. So they are very, very close. That was a 50-inch TV, of course. Um, it might be different for the 55-inch. Obviously, that's something that you're going to test, Steve. Uh, but basically, what it means in terms of colour accuracy is that in the 2015 range of TVs, they now have about 8,000 registry spots in terms of colour points which is far more than you would normally get in a consumer TV with lookup tables. Normally, you would you would get the points for Rec 709 and that'd be about it. Here, they, they reckon that from zero IRE to 100 IRE, they can fix each point where it should be. So if you say you're looking at uh, the grayscale of red and at 50% red will look a certain shade, not all TVs can do that. And where a lot of the times when a calibrator comes along, they don't even check that. They will measure at 75% or 100%. They will definitely calibrate at 100% and the graphs will look perfectly fine. Uh, what we do in our reviews is we we do that at 100%. But what we also do is we measure each point from 25% uh, to 50, 75, and then 100%. And check that the, the grayscale of each color or the color of each color is perfect at those points. So when you take brightness away, so 50% red is half of what it would be at 100%, it has to hit a certain point, and that's what these registry points do. So there's 8,000 of them. So they're not just looking at Rec 709, you're talking about almost all the color points that you could possibly have within each standard. So that's one thing that they're working on. They've also added six color points into their CMS this year. They always just used to do RGB, which was never a bad thing because if you get RGB bang on, uh, normally the secondary colors, as long as your white balance is, is bang on as well, would, would come and land where it should land within the CIE. Again, though, that's 100%, not 75, 50 or 25. So they're making a big point about luminance of colors and why that's important and so on. Now, one of the things that forum members always throw back at us when we talk about picture accuracy and things being accurate to the director's intent is well how can how can it possibly be that each film that's made is made to the same exact standards and all the rest of it and you know if you go to one studio and then another studio it's going to be different and so on and what this trip proved was that that's not the case we were at Panasonic Hollywood Labs they worked to those color spaces we went to Technicolor they worked to those color spaces they worked to the same uh, exact standards that we preach in the reviews uh, we went to Skywalker Sound and Skywalker Ranch again they work to the same same color points obviously in terms of sound they don't use colors but they're not just doing sound you know they do color correction and so on as well and all the color correction places have a reference monitor and most of them are Sony um, OLEDs uh, which are industry-wide I mean Panasonic were even using those in their demonstrations of other products which I can't talk about at the minute um, just to show how accurate they were to the reference monitor so uh, for example we were in Technicolor uh, we were with the the colorist there who had worked Big Bang Theory and Lost and a few other TV programs and he was he had a, a clip of some footage from the Panasonic Vericam to show us that's a 4k camera it shoots at 12 bit 444 so what he was showing us was that footage and what he could do with the tools that he had at his disposal. The tools were free, which is mind-blowing. You just have to buy all the peripheral 
stuff to make it work. Um, but what, the, what he could do was, he could basically go into a scene and, and if I was wearing a blue shirt and the director decided that actually I wanted that to be a red shirt, um, he could put a power mask onto that and change the colour and, and change it quite accurately. And, of course, there's other things. So, basically, what, what a colourist does is he takes the cinematographer and director's vision for a scene because everything's shot flat. So, I'm not sure if everybody's aware of how this works in Hollywood now, but basically, any any camera that they shoot on, what they do is they go for as much lateral information as possible in terms of uh, black and white. So, they try to capture as much detail as possible, but it's usually flat, meaning that there's very little colour or even no colour. Uh, in the footage that they actually capture. So they're going for the latitude of the camera and trying to capture everything. And this, this makes sense when you come to HDR because this is exactly what HDR is. They then put it through their machine and the director and cinematographer will say exactly what the mood should be, um, how it tells the story, what colours, well, how the colours should look. So if you're thinking about something like, I'm trying to think of an obvious one because Spielberg did it with a couple of his, um, War of the Worlds. So you went for a very baked-in look where... The whites were blowing out and it had a very gritty look. That's sort what it's like desaturated. Yeah, totally desaturated and blow like the Private Ryan as well had a yeah. similar kind of de- blow out all the highlights. It's the colorist that does that. It's not the cinematographer, it's not the director, it's a colorist that, that works on this. And then he gets approval from the director that that's what, what was intended to be. And that's his job basically. The interesting thing was that he had his uh, reference monitor in front of him, but just to the side where he was checking stuff they were using consumer screens. They were using Panasonic screens. And what they said to us at Technicolor was that they always relied on Panasonic plasmas. And of course, Panasonic plasmas no longer exist. And they had a real panic on uh, about a year ago when that happened, maybe two years ago now, trying to find replacement screens that they could put in their studios and their little workshops to make sure that they they could look at the reference monitor and then look at the consumer monitor to see how that was looking on that. And... To cut a long story short, they they have decided that the EX900 series, even though it's an IPS panel and we want that taken on with it, Steve, uh, in terms of a, a top-end consumer TV, in terms of what they wanted in the studio, it's absolutely bang on. They, it hit all the colour points that they wanted to do. The grayscale was perfect on it. And it's as close to a pl- plasma-looking picture that they could... Obviously, they haven't seen the CX series yet, but they did all the tests and all the rest of it. And at which point, I did raise the question, well, what are you testing to? What equipment are you using to test? What software are you using? And the engineer was like, all right, if, if you're interested in that and anybody else is interested in that, and I think it was me and a couple of Japanese en- engineers, the rest of them went for a coffee and we went up to his little workshop area where he had all different types of screens in. So he had the latest Samsungs and Sonys and Panasonics and so on. And surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, because we already know this, but I, I guess some of our listeners don't, is that he was using a Klein K10 which is the same meter that we use for our reviews, and Kalman 5 software, doing things exactly the same way as we do for our review testing, which, I mean, we knew that this happened, Steve, but it's, it's nice to actually get proper confirmation by being in their environment, looking at their things, and them saying, well, this is what we do, and we do this every 90 days, and we go around and check all the screens in the facility. We report, I print out a report to say that they're all accurate. The same happens in New York. The same happens in the UK, in their offices in the UK. So they know that if they look at material on any of these monitors, wherever they are in the world, at one of their facilities, they'll always look the same. Yeah, I mean, it's it's um, reassuring to know that uh, what we've been saying all these years about you know the use of standards and why standards exist in the first place uh, are being adhered to by all these companies. I mean, we always knew that, but some, some people don't always think we believe us. But 
I mean, the only way you, it would possibly work is if you had a set of standards. Otherwise, everything, nothing would look the same, would it? Well, I mean, think, um, think of how many um, special effects artists work on just one scene in terms of, 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 of a film. And they all work at their own workstations. And each of those monitors on the workstations have to be exactly the same. Otherwise, what's the point of them working on their bit if, if it's not going to look, if it's all not going to look the same when they put it all together? It's good to know that Technicolor are using the same equipment we are to do our reviews. That's excellent. Yeah, yeah. So that was really good. Because obviously there are, you know, they could have been using something hellishly expensive, like a Minolta or something like that. But, well, you're, uh, well, you're saying a Klein K10 isn't expensive. It is, but not, it's not 40 grand, is it? Well, well no, it's not. And, and obviously when, when we went to visit THX to wrap up this tour, um, they were using a Konica Minolta top, top of the line machine, which not a lot of people do use. So, yes, I see what you're saying. Um, a lot of that's to be light as well because he has to go between all the different little rooms and there's hundreds of these little colourist rooms and mix rooms and all the rest of it. And they all have to look the same and they all have to be checked every 90 days as well. So, yeah. you know, to travel light, it, uh, you know, the client's ideal for that and the common software is usually bang on as well. But another important point that he made was that he has his reference material, which, you know, we have our reference material when we're writing reviews. So we're not just relying on what's in the charts and what the charts are saying. You're actually checking on screen to make sure because you know the scene so well you know what it should look like, you know what should be going on. Um, you can then check that visually to make sure that what the graphs are telling you is what's happening on the screen. And and that's very important for him because what he said was he's representing Technicolor. Technicolor represents the fact that your images will look the best that they can possibly be and, and will match. And if they were ever to do anything wrong and somebody was to make a mistake because of a miscalibrated display, it puts the whole company's reputation on the line. Yeah. Uh, so although he gets to do... What we probably uh, refer to is, is a dream dream job going around calibrating all these screens. Actually, the amount of pressure on the guy, and the guy was called Jeff. And thanks very much to to him for uh, for showing us behind the scenes because I think the Japanese engineers were they kept asking questions like, "So uh, Samsung?" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think I mean I did um, a trip to Sony's um, facility, and it was the same thing as you felt they were showing us just how much control. Uh, colorist has and how much of the uh, decisions are made in terms of the look of a picture of a, of a, of a, a film's image is done at the a digital intermediate stage and not in, at the photography stage almost nothing is done at the photography stage now it's just you said shot flat and then everything's done in terms of storytelling and artistry is done after the fact as opposed to the old days when you would shoot on 35 millimeter film and you do much of it in camera as you could and at the end of it the color, the color timing is basically about making each of those different reels look the same, isn't it? It's, it's yeah, it's, so it's changing, changing the look of the film as much as it is just making it a consistent experience. Yeah. Now it's about about storytelling through color and not just color, but they can highlight certain aspects, brighten up certain things, darken certain things. They can also remove lines, mattresses, faces, and all manner of stuff that gets done now at the digital intermediate stage. That is basically where the film, the look of the film, is decided. Yeah, and obviously. With us being at Technicolor in LA, that that was the main Technicolor building. They had a lot of historical um, bits of equipment and so on. Unfortunately, they can no longer show three-strip Technicolor, which is a bit of a shame. I mean, <laughs> that was the original. Oh, really? <laughs> it is, but it just shows you how much things are moving on. I mean, he was saying um, just last month they got rid of the 70mm projector um, from their, their viewing um, media rooms and stuff. So it's all gone digital now, which is... It's a real shame when you think back yeah. to the, the golden days of film and, like you say, three-strip Technicolor, you know, for the Wizard of Oz and stuff like that. You know, it was pioneering stuff back then. And, uh, you know, when you think that these guys have been around over 100 years at Technicolor and the, and the majority of the work they're doing now is TV programmes. 
yeah. and and yeah. color correcting for that and you know doing the grading and so on for different tv programs and so and just shows you how much the, the, there's been a shift towards um and we mentioned it on our last podcast um how much tv's come on in leaps and bounds in terms of uh, how things look and and how things are shot and so on um so that was day one day two was a trip of a lifetime for me i know you were incredibly jealous uh steve <laughs> And I would have been if it was the other way around because not many people get to go through the gates and you just have to watch the Big Bang Theory to see that one episode they did try to get into this facility and were stopped at the actual gates and it was the gates that we were at and we went to Skywalker Ranch and I have to say that was a a moment where I could take it off the bucket list. Um, one thing I've always wanted to do ever since I was a small wee, wee boy mad on Star Wars, I wanted to go to Skywalker Ranch. I probably didn't know what went on there when I was that that age but you know over the years we've heard the stories of what goes on at skywalker um you know the sound mixing facilities they have there uh the thing that would interest you ed is that the sound scoring stage is actually based on uh, room one at abbey road actually when you stand in there you could be mistaken for thinking that you actually are at abbey road it's a fantastic facility and you will have seen photographs of it with john williams with the orchestra and the the screen on the back wall, the big projection screen, looked identical to that. Obviously, John Williams wasn't there, <laughs> but it looked identical to that. And I've been in in room one or studio one at Abbey Road, and I think you have as well, Steve, aren't you, for different launches and so on. Um, and it looks the same. It's the same flooring material. It's an acoustical floor. Control rooms there. They had the the premixer for the headphones for the orchestra and stuff, and then the main control room. Uh, B and W's being used, Ed, which Splendid. is the same, same at Abbey Road. Um, same setup there. Obviously, they can put any monitors in, any speakers in. Any speaker company can claim that their speakers are used because you know sometimes they will be specced and they will be put in and used. Um, but it was BMWs. It was um, TADs also on show there, and I can't remember the rest because I didn't. The Genelex? No, there was actually there wasn't any Genelex, but they did say that they did have them, so they could put them in if that was what was specified and so on. So that was an interesting room. The big highlight for me, um, other than the main house, because the main house is, the way it's laid out, you have the main house in the middle of the complex and then Skywalker's off to one building and then you have the mixed studios, which are way off in other buildings in the complex. It's a working farm, so there were actually labourers were in um, doing the hay bales and stuff while we were there. It was extremely hot, oppressively hot while we were there. Just how you see it in the, in the photographs, you know, the rolling hills that are yellow in colour because they're scorched with the sun and so on but the big the big thing for me was was uh, the stag theater and this is probably one of the most reported cinemas in the world um and repeated to be the only cinema that that sounds the way it does um there, there have been attempts to create cinema spaces like this um elsewhere but it's said that none of them actually do sound like it and i have to say i've never a seen a cinema like that as a 300 seat cinema but something like you've never seen before i mean the art deco design uh, the way that the roof works and so on all based on tom and holmanson's experiments which were done at another uh, facility just down the road in in san rafael uh, which we visited in the afternoon i'll get onto that but it was like a dream come true we saw the the battle between luke and vader in empire and then it cut to different scenes of films that they've been working on recently like oblivion and uh, a lot of the big films that have been out so far what's that one where robert redford on the boat on his own oh uh, mm. all is lost yeah where it's just the sound mix that tells the story basically there's not not a hell of a lot of dialogue and stuff so there's clips from that and clips from a few other things and then we went to a new hope and uh, the opening scene with the star destroyer and them coming on the rebel ship and the battle and stuff and it was intercut with 
the original recordings made on on the set. <laughs> and you got Darth Vader, who's obviously Dave Proust doing the lines in his West accent. West accent, yeah. Oh, that was funny. And then he, obviously then switching to the the actual mix. And I've got to say, I was hearing things in that cinema that I have never never heard before in my life. And placement of sound as well. I mean, it's a full Atmos system. So I had the two rows of speakers right on the ceiling, Steve, and the surrounds went right up to the screen. Um, so a proper full Atmos setup. And uh, yeah, it was like you got a real sense of height. You were able to pick pick sounds out that, that weren't just on the screen but were around about you and so on. And I have to say, probably one of the best cinemas I have ever been in in terms of sound quality. It was stunning. In terms of picture, it was just 2K. Although it still looked good on a big screen like that, but it was mainly the sound that really came to the uh, the forefront of what, what was going on. And you would expect that Skywalker sound. Interesting that it's just 2K, isn't it? Uh, well, they had four uh, full 4K capability, and to do 3D, they used four projectors as well. So two right. for each eye and so on. So they, they had the full gamut of stuff that they could do. It was just that those demo clips were in 2K. All right. Um, but still, on a big screen, looked fantastic. And like I say, sound was unbelievable. And then that afternoon we went to San Rafael and we went to the original building uh, where ILM was set up. Uh, so it was the original theatre that Tom Holman put together and did all the experiments to see where the surround should be and where the front speakers should be and you know how far how bright the projector needs to be and all. And it was like a miniature version of the Stag Theatre in terms of how it looked. So that was really interesting. They mixed the soundtrack to Return of the Jedi in that theatre. And we got to hear a couple of uh, THX trailers and that kind of thing. And then the start attraction there was Phil Tippett. His first work was the chess scene in Star Wars, which was done towards the end of the filming of that. It was one of the last-minute things that they put in. And then he's done everything that you could think of from from 78 onwards. And then the thing he's most famous for is obviously Jurassic Park and and the fact that he was made extinct by what ILM did with Jurassic Park because he was it was all going to be stop-motion. He showed us clips from his 1985 film, which was called Dinosaur. And it was a clip of raptors in that, velociraptors, and they look identical, although stop motion, to what ended up in the original Jurassic Park. And obviously he won the Oscar um, as well. But his main role on that film was to do the animatics, the animation before they filmed the scenes. And he, he was showing us his uh, stop motion stuff against the final scenes. So it was like the um, so the T-Rex scene where it, it comes through the fence and there's the two cars and the, mo- the whole movement of what the T-Rex did in that scene. He'd done all that and scoped all that out in stop motion before they, they did the, the final thing. And it looked identical. You know, the timings were all the same. So, I mean, I could have sat all day and listened to him talking because, uh, you know, he's he's done some some of the, the best effects work, I think, ever. And a lot of that was models as well. Um, um, and in the next room, next to the theatre, was a big soundstage where they did the speeder bike chase and Jedi. They blew up the... Uh, the big satellite dish in Jedi, Death Star, they did all the exteriors up on the wall, so they just hung, hung the exterior models up on the wall, the full length of the, the room, and then the camera run down and it would set explosions Ooh. off and all that kind of thing. And So there was that, and then there was the um, uh, the workshop where they made all the models and stuff, and he was saying it looks identical to how it looked in 1978. All that's been replaced is some of the machinery with newer bits of machinery, but it's, it's laid out in the same way that it always has been. And it's now owned by another effects company and they've just kept it the way it was. Um, so in terms of Hollywood history, absolutely stunning. But it then took us all the way back to why we were actually there and the message that Panasonic were trying to get across, which was the director's intent and making sure that you could see that on their TV screens. And they put a lot of effort in. And as you can tell, 
they pulled out all the stops on this trip to get that message across that Hollywood does it this way and our TVs can show it that way. Um, so if you take anything away from the trip is that they're, they're really going with that message and, and they're trying to make their TVs look that way. And I guess it's up to us to test them and test whether that actually is the case. Yes, exactly. Which is what we've always done and we'll continue to do. Uh, even when we move into uh, a new a new uh, standard, I guess, over the next year, uh, which you mentioned earlier, Phil, which would probably be, I suppose, uh, DCI. The guy at Panasonic Hollywood Labs is also one of the vice chairs on the 4K UHD standard. And when I spoke to him and asked him the direct question, I said, look, 2020, it's too wide, it's too narrow a wavelength. You know, there's not enough colour, ironically, in that to suit everybody because people are going to see it in all the different ways it needs to be rounded off so you know uh, there is there is some kind of color there for people to see um is it dci and he basically said well that's what everybody's mastering to at the minute um it costs them less money because they don't have to redo it in rec 709 if they kept it at dci they just have to do the uh, the whole process once in terms of color accuracy and gamma points and all the rest of it so he says it makes absolute sense to yeah. do it DCI because it saves them money because the last thing they want to be doing with a new format is then coming up with a new color space and then trying to move the whole industry to suit one thing whereas the industry is all at one point as it is with DCI the only out of date thing is Rec 709 so get rid of 709 bring everybody up to that standard and that'll do for the next 10 years and Absolutely. and I shouldn't say that'll do because if you've if you've ever seen DCI spec on a consumer TV it looks stunning compared to Rec 709 there's no need to go any wider at the moment anyway. DCI 10-bit video and um, ultra-high-definition resolution, I think uh, we'll be getting, not quite, but very close to what you're getting at the cinema, which I guess is any home, th home cinema's fan's dream. Yep. And another point, I'm just going to touch on this because there will be a video this week, so go and search out the video because there is an interview where we go into HDR in a little bit more detail but basically as I was saying the latitude of the cameras they try to capture as much as they can so when it comes to HDR all they're doing there is they're making sure that, that they have enough brightness to make the bright parts look bright without crashing detail in the whites and that they can get the black as black and it's all about the contrast between those two points um, and it's not about the brightness everybody's fixated on a thousand nits or two thousand nits or three thousand nits if you were to watch a screen when it's a thousand nits you wouldn't thank anybody because you would be blind after an hour of watching that. You'd be coming out with blotches in your eyes and, and all sorts um, because it's just far too bright. What they're using the brightness for is the highlights. It's making sure that if there's a light or there is a candle or some, some light area of the screen, then that is nice and bright, bringing out the detail without crushing it and the darks and the blacks are as black as possible. And that gives you the, the wide dynamic range or the high dynamic range as they call it. That's what it's all about. Yeah. And it was great. That well, that the clue was in the name, isn't it? Really. Um, and as was explained, 400 to 500 nits on an OLED because you've already got that fantastic dynamic range given the black levels. Um, if you can hit 500 nits for the brightness, then you're going to get HDR that looks identical to something with a thousand nits because it's not about the brightness; it's about bringing out the details in higher, higher uh, light areas of the image and making sure the blacks are as black as possible. So that was a great explanation, and that will be in the video interview, which should be up sometime this week. Uh, so let's take things on to audio very quickly. Um, Ed, we are going to start looking at hi-fi in more detail, and this is something that I've tasked you with over, over the next few months. And uh, the first thing that we're going to look at are 
two-channel bookshelves because you have the first review uh, that's gone up this week. So are you expecting to learn anything that you don't already know looking at speakers that range from the budget end like the AEs that are? Um, and then looking at things as they progress along, what, what kind of things are you looking for or expect to see? It's an interesting one because I I have, as you know, I've been across all the places I review for, I have been sort of out of the game when it comes to reviewing relatively affordable small speakers. Um, now, my review of the acoustic energy has, has gone up and uh, it went up this morning, uh, so it should still be up by Wednesday, um, as uh, is often my way when I start the reviews, uh, start at a tangent and torturously bring it on subject. There used to be unbelievable numbers of, uh, of affordable bookshelf speakers. I mean, group tests would, would go on for page after page of the damn things. There has been a bit of a sort of reduction in the number of, of, of choices available, but there's still an awful lot to choose from. And I think what's going to be interesting is looking at a number of these designs from, if you like, established brands. It's going to be the first time I've really played about with a number of them since Q Acoustics has come along. And Q Acoustics has, has been, um, if you like, one of the companies, in, in, uh, sorry, I'll start that again, that have existed in a number of um, categories. They are, if you like, a di- they, they specialise in being a disruptive influence uh, because Q Acoustics had a different philosophy to how they were developing products because they weren't saving technology for best. They were essentially throwing significant development and a lot of pa- time and patience and tweaking at very affordable loudspeakers. And what, for me, is going to be interesting about this is seeing how established brands who do have to, in some ways, have a philosophy of keeping for best because they have product ranges well over and above what Q Acoustics is is, is offering products for, even with the advent of the concept speakers, uh, and seeing how they can compete on budget terms with a brand that doesn't have some of the same restrictions and, and how they've responded and how they've done it whilst keeping some of their sort of distinctive technologies. And the good news is, uh, as an opening gambit, Acoustic Energy's done quite well at that. Fundamentally, they always, for me, was a speaker that was uh, about a degree of sort of fun. They're, they were speakers that were lively, they were fast, they were sort of often they weren't the last word in absolute accuracy, but there was a lot of fun whilst listening to them. And the 101, they've managed to keep much of that joy, but I was astounded at, at how revealing and, and how fundamentally, you know, accurate a portrayal of, of what was going on you got out of them. Um, I reviewed, and it will go up later this month, because unusually, I need to state this as a point of pride, I actually delivered four reviews for AV Forum whilst it was still the month I was supposed to deliver them in. Yeah, I know. Um, probably won't happen again in a while. But nonetheless, um, I re- one of the other reviews that's going up this month is is uh, of, of a clear audio turntable, the Performance DC, and we'll cover that in, in later podcasts. But I was, as I said in the, in the review copy, I was able to reach the same decisions, or would have been able to reach the same decisions about how the clear audio performs through the acoustic energies, uh, all other equipment being the same, that I was able to reach using my neat loudspeakers, which are an order of magnitude more expensive. Um, that's not to say that the acoustic energies are better than the neats. I, I need to make that abundantly clear, but they were sufficiently accurate and sufficiently revealing that I was I would have been able to write the review of the clear audio using them 
and only them and get and reach the same conclusions. And I think that's phenomenally impressive for a relatively affordable product. As a, so obviously you're looking at them as a, a nice bookshelf stereo pair, but um, you know, speakers being speakers, they don't know if they're being used in, in a stereo setup or a home cinema setup. So could you see yourself using five of these maybe to make up a, a multi-channel uh, yeah, setup? Yeah, no question at all. Um, obviously we've reviewed... All right, so I've reviewed the Acoustic Energy 1 Series as a 5.1 pack, but there were the floor standards at the front. I have to admit, you'd have, I, I don't think, especially given that the sub that Acoustic Energy makes for the range is, is actually pretty good, um, you'd easily, easily be able to use two pairs of these in the centre without I, any I, issue at all. I wouldn't because they're only 30 centimetres high, so I'd have three of the same across the front. It's all about matching the, the sound. So I, I, rather than going with floor standards in a centre or two of them in a centre, I would actually go with three identical. I don't know if they, I think they're missing a trick here because, like most brands, I don't know if they're sold individually. Right. Okay. Um, but no, I do, I do agree with you. And interestingly, uh, nice segue, unwittingly, um, one of the other reviews for this month is SVS's Prime 5.1 pack. And SVS has done just that. Uh, there's just five identical Prime satellites. And yeah, uh, obviously, I won't give away too much for the review. Uh, there are. Pros and cons using a speaker that small as a centre speaker, uh, but nonetheless, the handling across the front is, as you say, is exactly is, is is seamless uh, as it should be from three identical loudspeakers. There is a lot to be said for doing things that way out. Yeah, and you know, I, I guess the only way you can do that in the living room though is with the smaller speakers. So, um, with with those, did you use a higher crossover to get around the fact that you needed a bit of bass energy in the front? Yes, uh, the. Actually, the interesting both both uh, multi-channel reviews I've done this month. There's the Q Acoustics three thousand and the uh, SVS Prime. They the satellites actually had a, a frequency response within one hertz of each other. The Q Acoustics is sixty eight, and the SVS is sixty nine hertz as a minimum frequency roll frequency roll off. What was interesting is that they both put my put the auto setup of the Yamaha. The YPAO system into a bit of a into a bit of a um, a quandary. It kept on trying to set a sixty hertz crossover for both of those based on the feedback it was getting, which, in theory, notionally at least, would have left a a, a, a ten hertz sort of suck out. Yeah. Um, but no, I I manually booted it back up to eighty hertz for both of them, and I I thought that was was extremely effective. I mean, in the case of the SVS, extremely effective because um, the system comes with the SB1000 which might be the, the smallest SVS sub all things are relative um but it's a, a still, very very impressive piece still of kit. a bit of a sledgehammer even at that size um well it's funny isn't it like the other sealed box SVSs i'm not suggesting for a moment that they're gentle but there is a slight delicacy to the sealed box units if you want if you go for the bigger ported box ones they're still quite fast and quite agile for subwoofers but there really is a sort of yeah. effect when when you when you do it whereas the s the, the sealed box ones it's a little bit more delicate and and the sb1000 a genuinely impressive piece of kit really rather nice indeed in many ways again don't want to give away too much the the subwoofers is what pulled apart the uh, the two the two speaker packages i've reviewed this month yeah i was just going to say it, it all comes down when you're talking about subsets it all comes down to the quality of the subwoofer and uh, certainly noticed that with the M&K reviews recently and using the, the V12 and then the X12, which is the big double 12-inch thing. Um, setting them higher, I think I was 
I think I was using a hundred hundred hertz crossover with the smaller one uh, fifties, the uh, the half half sized ones, um, just because they did lose a little bit in the mid range. But even just crossing over at hundred um, with quality subwoofer, uh, it's it's non directional, so you can't tell where the sub's coming from, even at hundred hertz. Um, and it just made such a difference to the overall. So it's so cohesive. You didn't know that the subs were there. I mean, you could if you hid the subs away, you would have thought the speakers were. We're providing the audio. You know, that's how cohesive it was. Really, really good. Um, so is in- your sub at the front though? In my normal system, I've got a sub in every corner. On the right. in the systems that I've reviewed, I've been using two subs, and I've they've had them centrally placed at the front. Because I I have to admit, I agree with you on a hundred hertz cross- crossover. If the subs are at the front, if I use the front location for it, if I have it at the back, so it's nearer me, I find that eighty hertz just gets fractionally directional. Mm-hmm. I, I I become aware of stuff which I feel really should be in the in the speakers, starting yep. to make its presence felt. Yeah. Um, which is why, generally speaking, I don't like going higher than eighty. Certainly on the normal local where I place a sub. But, yeah. You know, it's all yeah. Six I mean, if the other. if if you're talking that, if you can't get them centrally mounted, what I would do is put them in the corners at the front, mm. um, and then use the higher crossover. And again, that gets away from the directionality of it of the base then. Um, through the experiments that I've done in this room, and I've been using this room for 14 years now, so um, I know it pretty well, and mm. that's what I've found from my experiments. You know, If you can't put them centrally, uh, put them in the corners if you're going to use a higher crossover. And it works, and it works really well, and you can't tell the difference. Towards the rear of the room or anywhere else in the room, and depending on the room size and shape, I, I would agree with you, Ed, that it's a bit hit and miss. You've got to experiment mm. with it. Okay, well, um, we seem to be so far on topic... <laughs> <laughs> That's it's just not true. <laughs> we need, we, yeah, we need to do something different from this point on. Um, unfortunately, it's no games news, uh, but there is a games podcast. If uh, if that is what you're after, so go and download that. We're going to move on. Can next. we not do a? So that's not games news. Uh, we're running out of time this week, Steve. So let's just go to movie news, and we'll do that in a second. So what's at the cinema, Steve? I'm going to go a little bit against uh, against the grain here, I'm against popular conception. I think um, I went to go and see Terry Genesis, and you know what? I quite enjoyed it, <laughs> much to my surprise. Yeah, actually, uh, Kirsty came, just so you know, you're not alone. Kirsty came back, she went to see it on Thursday. She came back going, I should have hated that, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the trailers, um, and if you haven't seen the trailers, for God's sake, don't see the trailers because they give away far too much plot. And I think it would be a far more enjoyable film if you don't know the plot twist going in. Um, but yeah, based upon the trailers and the terrible reviews that have been getting, I was thinking, oh, this is going to be awful. But in actual fact, some of it was pretty good. I'm not saying it's a great film, not by a long margin. And um, it's got some major issues, one of which is the casting of Jai Courtney as, as Reese, um, Kyle Reese. He's a terrible actor and he's a big, bulky beefcake and he just doesn't look anything like Michael Bean. And they should have hired a completely different actor for the role. And that's an unfortunate thing. Um, Amelia Clark. Actually, looks an awful lot like a young um, Linda Hamilton, but she looks a bit too young. She looks about twelve sometimes, like a puppy fat twelve-year-old, um, uh, which is kind of disconcerting because she just seems too young at times. Um, I know she's not that young in real life, but she does. She's very baby-faced, but she does look a lot like Linda Hamilton, which is quite good. Schwarzenegger is—it's a bizarre thing to be able to say this, but I think Schwarzenegger gave the best performance in the film, which is not something you say very often. Um, and the way that they work around his, you know, age. Uh, is is relatively clever. The first half of the film, I think, is pretty good. Um, 
the best way I can describe the first half of the film is if you, if you imagine you've got a favourite band and you love their first two albums and someone brings out a, a greatest hits album composed of those first two albums but with re-recorded versions of the songs. That's kind of what it's like watching this film because it's, it takes place, you know, it starts off in the future, they go back in time to 1984 and you're seeing scenes exactly the same as scenes from The Terminator. And then a T one thousand turns up, and it all goes a bit, bit too, 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 some sort of elements to, of twenty two come into it, and it's it was, it's a bit like um, the second half, the second film, Back to the Future Part Two, when you know, when they're running around um, in the original film in the second film, it's a bit like that, and yeah, and I thought that was pretty good. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm enjoying this. The second half of the film turns into a bit more of a chase thing, and um, helicopter chase and a bus chase. And you've, you've seen Tracy with the bus cartwheeling through the air, and that got a little bit boring, but. I've got to say, overall, there were some interesting ideas in there. Uh, it was well made. It was exciting in places. The first half, I thought, was actually pretty good. Um, and it's certainly not as bad, I think, I personally think, as people are making it out to be. I think it's actually not a bad movie. It's certainly better than Terminator 3 and Terminator 4. Um, wow. Uh, I know that's not saying a lot. That's not saying a lot. But, um, yeah, um, with a few changes here and there, it, it could have been a genuinely decent movie. Uh, and, that, and then that's a shame, really. I think there, there's a couple of mis. Uh, certainly, Jared Courtney's definitely a mistake in terms of casting as Carl Reese. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, there's you know, there's there's some really good. There's, there's stuff in it that I thought was actually really good, and stuff that I thought was genuinely quite clever. Um, you know, for a, a, a fun two hours at the flicks, it worked perfectly for me, and I, I, I came out thinking, yeah, I, I enjoyed that. And it's not often I get to say that these days, so there you go. Much to my surprise, uh, I'd probably give it seven. Okay, so it's not that controversial because Kaz gave it a six, so you're not that far away. Yeah, but um, yeah, Kaz, Kaz, Kaz's taste when it comes to action films, though, are a bit skewed sometimes. <laughs> he has given some very strange scores, and he gave Interstellar 10 out of 10, and that was bloody awful. So, uh, um, yeah. It's, it's a bit like asking uh, Chris McNee to review films involving semi nude men. The scores are going to be off the charts, aren't they? But not necessarily going to reflect the quality of the movie. All right, so talking about quality movies, Ted 2 is opening this Friday. <laughs> I don't know. We'll soon find out. So are you going to go and see this? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to go and see it. I mean, initially, the only reason I think this film exists is because Ted made tons of money uh, and um, A Million Ways to Die in the West didn't. But um, uh, And then when I saw the first trailer for it, I thought, mm, don't like the look of this. It lo- looks a bit forced and there's no Mila Kunis. Uh, and, you know, you kind of... I got a very horrible uh, in-between-us-two vibe about it, which is another you know, film that only exists because the first film made so much money. Um, the second trailer, though, was really, really funny. Uh, and so I've got a sneaky suspicion it should be, a, it should be a good laugh, um, even though I, I'm wary of its existence. So it'll be, a, it'll be a mix between the two trailers, then, is what you're Sorry? saying. You're saying there'll be a mix. It'll be yeah. between the two trailers. It, but there were some pretty good gags in the second trailer. That were uh, yeah, very I've, I've got stuff, to say, so I can't I repeat on this podcast, but we're really good. Um, so... Yeah, I, I, I'm sure. I mean, I really, really liked the original Ted. I thought it was funny, uh, and, I, and I thought, actually, much to my surprise, again, a bit like with Tony, I liked Mark Wahlberg, and I don't normally like Mark Wahlberg. Normally, I can't stand the sight of him, but I thought he was pretty good in Ted. Um, and the teddy bear aspect and, and Seth MacFarlane's voicing was good, as always. So uh, my hopes are higher now for this than they were when I saw the first trailer. And I'm sure it'll be a fun hour and a half in the movie, and there'll be some good laughs in there. So, you know, and, and to be honest, I didn't dislike a million ways to die in the West as much as everybody else did. So, so right. So yeah. that's uh, that's Ted Two. That's coming to the cinema this Friday, and our review is going to be up when Steve. Well, uh, should be hopefully for Thursday night, it, Friday morning, first thing at the latest. Um, Shireen is going to be reviewing that one for us. 
Okay, so keep an eye on the homepage for our review of that. So let's move on to the Blu-ray roundup. This is for this week and next. It follows Chappie and Focus. Chappie and Focus reviews are on the homepage. I've actually seen all three of these films. In fact, I watched It Follows last night. And um, it's pretty good. It, it, I, unfortunately, it's been hyped up massively, including by Simon in his review, I've got to say, as being this incredible horror film and really scary and blah, 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 and really unnerving and it will stay with you after you've seen it. Um, it and Because I think it had been hyped up so much, I was a bit disappointed because it isn't that scary. It's got a couple of moments of, of shocks in it. And it is a quite an interesting concept. Basically, it's like a sexually, sexually transmitted um, ghost, best way of describing it. Someone, this guy sleeps with this girl and passes on this creature that follows her literally follows her slowly can only walk very slowly um but, no so seriously that, that is the concept but that, that sounds silly at first but if you understand you've got this thing slowly walking towards you all the time and it can look like anything any any person um it can be it does become quite unnerving and it is an interesting idea um i guess it's a concept you know, a sort of commentary on what, what, what happens if you get in a plane and go to the next continent well i was thinking we'll that i was thinking if i walk across the ocean <laughs> it just take it a very long time to find. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you can outrun it to a degree, but eventually it's going to catch up with you. I guess it's a metaphor for time, isn't it, really? I mean, because there's a, a cast of young characters and um, there's no real old characters in the film um, as in main characters. It's just... So it's, it's, a, bit, it's a bit like death in, in the yeah, yeah, in that yeah. series of films about death. What was that again? Uh, Final Destination. Final Destination, yeah. Eventually this thing will catch up with you. Um, and so they obviously the cast, the, the girl who's been infected with it, if you like, she's trying to find out whether the first of all, she doesn't believe it. And then she comes to realize she's being followed by this thing. And there's some scary moments in it. And then she tries to get rid of it and this sort of stuff. Um, I thought the ending, the ending's a bit ambiguous. It's, it was fun. It was an interesting concept. It was well, well executed um, with a, an unknown young cast who I thought were pretty good in it, actually. So well performed, well executed, interesting idea. Some decent scares in there, and it is a little bit unnerving at times, um, but it, it isn't the horror masterpiece I think it's being um, touted as, unfortunately. But um, still worth checking out if you get the chance. Chappie, Neil Blumkamp's new film uh, about a, a self-aware robot. So it's basically a cross between Robocop and um, um, it, um, Short Circuit. Yeah, which was uh, the byline now. I think I didn't need to read the rest of the review. It said it all for me. No, no, that's it, but set in Johannesburg. Uh, and if you've seen any Neil Blomkamp film, um, you'll know what to expect. It's more yep. of the same. He needs to get a new trick. Um, uh, it's got some major flaws in it, uh, which I noticed in the thread people are already starting to point out. Um, the effects, though, are superb. He's really, really good at combining physical and digital effects in the real world and creating, making digital effects look totally realistic. He's incredibly good at that, but he needs to work on screenplay, you know, script and, and characterization and acting. Here is weak points, unfortunately. Focus, uh, that's a Will Smith movie um, uh, where he plays a con man. And I did the review of that for the cinema and um, I enjoyed it. It's, it's a fun, you know, confection, a light hour and a half of entertainment. Don't expect too much from it and you'll be fine. It's is it, nothing is it Will Smith back to his best? It's yeah, he's back best. to being charming and yeah. fun. And he hasn't done that for a long time. So in that sense, I, I enjoyed it more because it was nice to see Will Smith back to being Will Smith again after such a long time of, of playing heavier, darker roles. So that was good. Uh, and Margot Robbie's very good in it as well as the female lead. And it's good. But if you've seen any con man films, and particularly if you've seen The Sting, <laughs> you're, you're going to know where this is going pretty quickly. But it's 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 a fun, and it's you know very glossy and well-made and looks expensive. She used to, she was on the TV, wasn't she? Neighbours or something like that, wasn't she? Margot Robbie's as fit as a butcher's dog. Yeah, that's, 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 that's in um, yeah. Wolf of Wall, Wall Street, Street with no clothes well. on. So that's worth seeing, if only for that. Okay. <laughs> That's your recommendation for the week, is it? <laughs> <laughs> like a Robbie's knockers, yeah. Uh, no, I, of those films, I would recommend uh, It Follows Me, my recommendation. All right, okay. And 
just to wrap up, because this was a question that um, I don't know where it came from, Steve, but you asked it this morning, and it, it took me forever to figure out which was uh, which film it was. So what was the first 18 certificate film that you saw at the cinema? So the rules for this are um, it, it has to be an 18 certificate. It had to be at the or cinema. Or if you're old enough to be, go back that far, X. Or, or X, yeah, okay. <laughs> and it had to be at the cinema, um, and you had to be there. You had to go and see, actually see it. So that, that was the I rules. Had to go and see it at a cinema, not watch it on video at home or something. Or get your dad to go and get it from the video shop. You had to actually go and pay and get into the cinema and be, you know, check for your age and all that sort of stuff. Okay, right. So it'd probably be sixteen for me. So I'm going to work out the year. Let's go, to Ed. First, Ed, what was yours? I'm pretty sure it was Boogie Nights. Okay, but Christ, again, you're young. Yeah, well, I know. This is one of one of the, one, something that when, you when was that? Up that was that was nineteen ninety-seven. Was it ninety-seven? Was it? I thought it was ninety-eight. Oh, there we go. Well, maybe it's 98. It was definitely around there. Yeah, I yeah. wasn't much much younger than 18. But as I say, I've never been never been particularly big on going to the cinema. Um, and actually, I have to be honest, it was only because my then-girlfriend was interested in going to see it. Um, so it's like, meh, yeah, why not? Mm-hmm. In for a penny, in for a pound. And uh, yeah, it was... It was fine. I wasn't. I wasn't eighteen. Nobody bothered checking my age. And um, yeah, I I quite like the film. I own it on. I haven't got a Blu-ray copy of it. I've still got it on DVD. Okay, Go so me. so that was well known for its explicit sex scenes, and it was obviously following the the porn industry. Do you know what the first one that I saw? First eighteen certificate. Basic Instinct. <laughs> Get in. <laughs> I've just worked it out, and that that's where it was. It was Basic Instinct. Nice for, for, obviously, you, you went to see the acting and the performances and the story and the plot and everything. No, I went to see Sharon Stone. <laughs> <laughs> Getting a kit off. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Ed, we're not it's... slightly concerned coming out of Boogie Nights that maybe you weren't measuring up as far as um, certain <laughs> things were concerned. I don't remember being that concerned, no, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's it's the Paul Verhoeven uh, on the laser disc of Basic Instinct. His commentary track is just classic. The whole scene where uh, the whole sex scene, um, and he just keeps talking about our nipples and how nice and pert they were. Those nice pert nipples are looking fantastic. Actually, any Paul Verhoeven commentary track is usually good for a laugh. His one on Starship Troopers, is, which, speaking of Phil Tippett, he did the effects for, um, is really funny because he keeps pointing out when it's a digital version of Johnny and when it's the real version of Johnny, but you know, or when it's a digital bugger or a real uh, practical effect bugger. But he's kind of like. The other guy in the commentary track, I think it's Ed Newmar, who wrote the screenplays, like trying to talk about the, the politics of the film and, and the subtext. And then all you can hear is Rome going, Digital bug! Real bug! Real bug! Digital Johnny! Real Johnny! <laughs> Just hysterical. And not, not a commentary by him, but the commentary track on, on, on Showgirls by a, um, a fan of the film, is also a film critic, is really funny too. He basically rips it to pieces. So worth, worth listening to if you get a chance. Uh, right, so uh, 18 certificate, it's going to be X certificate for you, Steve, isn't no, it? No, it's not quite, not quite. I, um, I, I, I think I, I, when did the 18 certificate start? Was it 82? I think it was 82 they changed certifications. I remember going to see, um, when I was 12, I went to go and see Life of Brian, which was a double A, because back then it was U-A-double-A-X. And that was my first double A film. And that was like a real right of passage because everyone at school had seen it. So you had to go and see it. And you're meant to be 14 back then if you'd see a double A movie. And I don't think anyone in the queue at that cinema was even above the age of 14. Um, so that's the first time I'd ever, I'd ever seen anyone use the F word in a film and um, full frontal nudity on the stuff. It was great. Um, my first 
eight, and by then it had changed to 18. So I was 17 at the time of 1984, but it was the Terminator, which is why I raised the question in the first place, because my first 18 certificate film at the cinema was the Terminator, um, which was, you know, great because it was a fantastic movie. Um, obviously I'd seen plenty of stuff really horrible stuff on video prior to that since the age of about 13 but yeah. uh, but um certainly yeah going and paying getting into a cinema that was that was um that was the terminator yeah well that that was the that was the thing i mean that was the first time i went to the cinema on my own uh well with my girlfriend at the time uh at 18 or i think i was 16 or 17 i can't remember but when if you're talking about video we were one of the had one of the first beta machines and we had a, uh, a copy of um, American Werewolf in London and my parents had gone out to the, the supermarket and I put that on and that would have been 1983 84 the film came out in 81 yeah so video would have gotten, been yeah, video would have been about 82 83 is when it stopped kicked yeah, off wasn't it yeah so I was just I was just a youngin and uh, I, I, that, I remember watching scarred me for a long time <laughs> well I'll tell you my first Went to the video shop and the bloke said, oh, I've got some nice stuff behind the counter, Steve. And it was um, Zombie Flesh Eaters, which I first saw at the age of, at the ripe old age of, I think I was 14. Um, so, and it was quite traumatic. <laughs> so it was quite interesting interviewing the guy that was actually starring in that film. Remember we did that interview a few years ago? Yeah. With, with yeah. Chris uh, yeah. for Zombie Flesh Eaters. And um, yeah, so that was kind of weird th thinking I'm talking to the guy who was actually in a film that I found quite, you know, Quite traumatic as as a fourteen year old seeing, yeah, well, um, seeing I was, I was, the eyeball gouged out. I was eight when I watched <laughs> American Werewolf in London, and and the, I think I think the thing was the the dream sequences and, and the bit where they're yeah, watching they're really the, scary when they're watching watching the Muppets and the the Nazi monsters come in and start blowing everybody. Up. That was it for me. And then the bit where he's hunting the deer in the forest, he's dreaming it, and then he thinks he wakes up and he he, he hasn't woken up. Yeah, no, I mean, American Werewolf is one of those rare films that balances being genuinely funny with being genuinely frightening. And yeah. it's, it's quite a difficult act to do. And that's the one that really nails it. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant film. Yeah. And it was one of those films that wasn't that accessible at the cinema, was it? It kind of made, found, its, found its audience on video. Yeah. So what experiences uh, warped you, Ed, when you were a kid? Um, I think I watched Robocop at a slightly unsuitably young age. Um, <laughs> and I've got to be honest, it's a bit of a weird one because uh, the actual Peter Weller death in inverted commas sequence, I remember thinking, well, that's a bit overblown. I remember being much, much more taken aback when, when the, <laughs> the bloke gets gets covered in toxic waste. Um, <laughs> I was like, oh, that's not very nice. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I don't know. It, it, again, I've, I've never sought out to see films... You know, because everyone else is going, oh, it's, you know, got, you know, either horrendous violence or unbelievable nudity. It's like, well, fair play. Um, but uh, equally, in terms of films that, that did screw me up, I do remember just because it was it was actually just on in a, of, a, of a normal sort of week weekend afternoon. I watched um, Jewel, the Spielberg film with my dad when I was about, I suppose, five or six. Um, and I I love that film now. It's one of, possibly my so, favourite Spielberg so you, film. You love that, yet you haven't seen Jaws. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> but I like the trucks hell? more than I do sharks. 
Almost as simple as that, yeah, really. Well, well, he uses the um, same sound effect, doesn't yeah, he? Yeah, both he films. uses yes. quite, quite a few things out of that. In, in, you need to go and watch Jaws. Oh, Ed. shut up. I'll put it on my list of things to do. But I do remember having something of a something of a fear of articulated lorries for a fair amount of time after watching Jaws. <laughs> Did that ruin your ambitions becoming a uh, travelling salesman? Uh, <laughs> that you, did, did, did that put you off Yorkie bars? <laughs> <laughs> Only briefly. But yeah, I, I, that that was that. In many ways, that was because it was something that you know. Let's face it, uh, ki- sort of mur- murderous drug gangs and 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 cyborgs aren't aren't a big part of your life as a child. Articulated lorries are, are kind of there in significant numbers. <laughs> so uh, yeah, I remember thinking, bloody hell, yeah. that's not good. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a thing. There's there's a lot of um, everyday objects that have been used in movies where you know it has created that. Um, that that kind of effect in people, but I mean, it hasn't done it for me in any way that I can think of. But I'm sure there's there's some um, that that have been put off, think like Jaws, been put off going ever going in the water again, um, or getting on a plane, you know, a plane crashes that mm. kind of thing. Mm. And now I need to stress this hasn't put me off anything, but in terms of just the most, the in terms of things that that I mean I have I I don't believe I've watched it since is the, I don't know if it counts as massive spoiler, the sound effect in American History X with the pavement. Oh, we snap, yeah. his yeah. head on I the pavement. Just, yeah. no, I don't, if, I, if I don't hear that ever again, <laughs> that's absolutely fine by right, me. Right, have, have you got a copy of that, Steve? You're going to post it up and I'll capture that sound and we'll just play it every five minutes on the podcast. Lovely. <laughs> I, have, I haven't got American History X actually on, on DVD. Probably going to get um, that sequence on um, YouTube though, actually. Oh, there's the thing, yeah, I'll, I'll just nick it off YouTube. <laughs> It is though. It's. It's. I think I've only ever seen that film once, like, like you say, Ed, and it's so visceral. And I do not. It's need not to that hear graphic because it's actually in long shot. You don't see that yeah. much, but the sound, it, it, it really, it really is <laughs> yeah. bite the pavement, yeah. smack. Yeah. 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 It, it. Yeah. It's. It's. I, mean, I have to say, obviously. Um, again, and I'd really have to be vague on this because I'm well aware that people are at different points with Game of Thrones, but um, <laughs> the uh, there's a particular noise in season four. Um, involving heads, and uh, yeah, that oh, was yes, yes. <laughs> and, then, and, and what's more, obviously things things have moved on a bit. Um, the even just on the the Sky uh, broadcast, there's enough enough Dolby digital energy to give a really convincing sort of echo effect <laughs> around the arena. It's like I didn't need to hear that. Um, well, you'll be able to listen to it uh, in Atmos. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately for my for my bank balance. <laughs> The buggers are going to release. Oh, you're, you're, all not four gonna, you're not going to buy them again just for Atmos, are you? Thinking about it. Oh, you silly man! I'll tell you what. I'm I'm going to come up with some Blu-ray stuff and just sell it to you because you'll just buy anything. You. Um, the the one for me before we leave this subject that that's put me off and I could never watch it again was Arachnophobia. <laughs> now you see, for whatever reason, I don't. It, um, there are many creatures that I am deeply deeply unkeen on but for whatever reason spiders are not one of them um so yeah i am because i've been bitten by the sods twice which was really um, painful and surprising i have to say were you in hong kong steve no 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 this is in england mm. yeah well, i mean if you get a false widow bait or it wasn't like a false widow but it's just a normal garden spider but you know they're pretty right. big and they can puncture your skin and it's only like a, like a bee sting i suppose but it was more of a shock i think a surprise of being bitten by the bloody thing but um it had made me i don't i'm not arachnophobic i mean i can i've handled um tarantula and things like that but but i'm not a big fan of handling spiders in case they bite me again it's a bit like i'm not i'm not scared of snakes but i don't want to get bitten by one either for that matter oh no snakes um, i cannot do snakes. handled snakes as well 
Um, but I'll tell you what freaked me out. This isn't um, this isn't a real world thing. I, well, I don't think it would happen in the real world. I hope it wouldn't. Um, but the thing that absolutely completely freaked me out as a kid, uh, I guess I would have been um, probably about eleven or twelve, maybe about eleven. I think it was. It was on. It was a TV. It was the first showing on TV of Philip Kaufman's remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a sequence where you know they, the pods absorb the people and they become copies. Well, this tramp and his dog get absorbed together, and a dog comes bounding across the road at one point with a guy's head. And um, yeah, looking at that, you can watch it on YouTube. It's kind of a crappy effect. But as a kid, absolutely, totally freaked me out. <laughs> really, really oh, did. If we're talking about that, um, what was that truly terrible horror film uh, set in the trenches with oh, uh, uh, Billy Elliot? Death, Death, um, Death Watch? Something like that. There's a sequence involving rats. Was that Michael That's, uh, Bassett? Michael J. Bassett. Yeah, it was Michael Bassett. <laughs> uh, which is quite unpleasant. <laughs> Um, oh yeah, my I've dad's never been, got a massive phobia of rats. You couldn't I've never been with, desperately with keen on them. But that's because they're almost unkillable. You know, so uh, I've never wanted to be keen on that. Not that unkillable. My, my, my cat keeps killing everything within the mile <laughs> radius. <laughs> well, it's, it's, yeah. it's a little white sociopath. Looks psychopathic little cute face killer. Keeps bringing in dead and annoyingly well, not that, dead things. No, she's just bringing back. It is a she, isn't it? Yeah. Just bringing back presents for you. That's that's. Yeah, they're not she, dead. She's. Why can't she kill them first? No, <laughs> because she's worried. Us. She's worried that your hunting skills aren't up to much. Well, then she's right. But the problem so is that's why she's bringing the mouse them back. Disappeared. Not... I don't know where it's gone. I can smell a dodgy smell in the lounge, but I can't find this dead mouse. <laughs> <laughs> it's really annoying. I've checked everywhere, every conceivable place where this mouse could hide and die, and I cannot find it. If you put down a trap, you'll get it. That's one thing. Oh, that I think the thing's dead. That's the problem. I think it crawled away in fear and shock and got and died. Right. But I don't know where it's done that. I've checked under the bookcase. I've had to move all the TV equipment and all the. It's it's a nightmare, and I've done everything, and I cannot find this sodding dead mouse. Okay. I can if definitely got, smell something in the background. If you got any advice on finding dead yes, mice? <laughs> One of those probes that police used to find bodies would be quite handy send right you, Send your advice to yeah, getthemouse at evforums.com <laughs> for attention to Steve. <laughs> uh, but all seriousness, uh, what was your first 18 certificate film uh, that you went to the cinema and seen? And what uh, horror movie or other movie or even special effect freaked you out as a child? And can you go back and, and still watch that scene or, or has it put you off? for life let us know in the comment section underneath this podcast in the podcast forum and that is all we got time for so my thanks to steve withers he said there's a storm coming and ed silly your son gave me a message to give to you he made me memorize it i think we're going to do the whole scene there no i'm bloody not because <laughs> it's so, one of the most tri- do you know actually just my favorite thing about the, the, the film we're quoting from the terminator is that because arnie only had a, it was 122 words of dialogue in the entire film he worked out that he was paid $28,000 a word. There you go. <laughs> no bad work if you can get. Um, right, so don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook, bookmarkavforums.com for latest reviews, news and video, and leave us a rating on iTunes, Ed. But only, only if it's five stars. Not even four and three quarters, five. I'm Phil Hinton. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you again next Wednesday. <laughs>